So welcome everybody um, to this edition of the uh, Sport and Leisure History Seminar um, that is run by the British Society of Sports History in conjunction with the Institute of Historical Research in London. Um, I'm Raf Nicholson um, and I am the chair of BSSH and one of the seminar conveners so I'll be chairing our paper this evening um, and I'm delighted to say that we have um, Malcolm McLean with us this evening um, and um, he is, um, well he holds various hats, um, he's honorary associate professor at the University of Queensland, um, he's a research fellow at the International Centre for Sport History and Culture at De Montfort University and he's also a senior research associate at the University of Gibraltar. Um, and um, Malcolm will be very well known to most of us, I'm sure. Um, he's a historian by training, but he also has um, degrees in anthropology and sociology. Um, and um, anyone who knows him will know that he has he always has an interesting way, an interesting angle of kind of looking at the, the world of sport and the discipline of sports history, uh, partly because of that. Um, he's written extensively um, about subjects including sport and apartheid, um, as well as colonialism decolonisation and, and post-colonialism um, and he used to have my job he used to be chair of, of BSSH as well once upon a time um, so obviously you know it's the the best the best role in the world Malcolm um, <laughs> all, all, all the best people hold that post at some point um, damn right there. damn right <laughs> so um, I will um, and I think um, I've got the title here as um, Settler Sport Indigenous Worlds Epistemicide, coloniality, and rugby union in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, so I will now pass over to Malcolm. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, Ref. Thanks for that intro. I'm uh, delighted to be here. It's been a while since I did a turn in this series. Um, and the last time I think was back in the days of steam radio uh, before we even recorded anything. So the thought that I'm sitting in my spare room uh, talking to 20 or 30 people in their spare rooms is, is, a, is, a, is a bit of a change. Uh, I just want to add to that intro um, by noting that I'm, I'm a settler scholar uh, living in England, but I have my feet firmly on the ground in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, I grew up in the traditional territory of Ngātarangi and Ngāti Pukenga in the area that we now call the Western Bay of Plenty. Um, both these iwi endured invasion by colonial troops and some of the most intense fighting in the wars of the 1860s, and that conflict is still quite clearly marked on those lands. However, to a large degree, I think of home as Te Whanganui Ātara, as Wellington, and the traditional lands of Te Atiawa and Ngāti Tōa. I cite these places and these peoples because these are the places that I think from, even as I live in the Cotswolds. And I acknowledge those peoples and those places as in part continuing to shape the ways I think and do but note that my thinking and doing is more a product of a critical settler engagement than of deeply grounded knowledge in Māori ways of knowing and what we might think of as Mataranga Māori. It's good to see so many of you here and I welcome you all to what I hope will be uh, a, dis a, a discussion that, uh, that, 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 that flows both ways. No my haere, my haere, my haere, my tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. I want to spend the next... 40 minutes or so exploring sport, coloniality, and in a sense, the things we don't see. As a starting point, I note that a growing number of imperial and colonial histories recognize the continuing centrality and effects of colonialism, enslavement, dispossession, and let me just, oh, bugger, bugger, bugger. Look at that, my middle age is getting the better of me. Colonialism, enslavement, dispossession, and appropriation. Well, they are recognised, it's often, although differently, in settler colonies, including all of the Americas. Now, while the effects of colonialism, enslavement, dispossession and appropriation in the contemporary cultures and economies of the metropolitan zones of Western Europe are barely noted, and when they are um, hotly contested, if not denied. For the most part, in our studies of sport, we remain blithely ignorant of the effects of those four processes as the essence of imperialism and colonialism on sport, leisure, recreation, or body and movement cultures, or indeed of the ways these processes have shaped the modernity that created both our sport and our ways of doing history. I'm not saying we haven't been alert to colonialism and, and imperialism, but that we've not really considered how they've shaped and framed what we study and how we study it. 
To a large extent, our analyses are marked by an absence of awareness of the otherness of the people we study and by a tendency to formalism. And by that, I mean that if it looks like rugby or whatever sport you care to insert, it must be singularly experienced as rugby or whatever sport you have chosen to, 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 to insert. I'm not convinced that that is the colonial experience. And furthermore, I am convinced that in failing to recognize the cross and transcultural experiences of sport and movement cultures, we and our subdiscipline are impoverished. Taking steps to make better sense of these experiences means that we might do better, different, and crucially, more just sports histories. But before I delve into the question of Māori iconography and worlds in New Zealand rugby, I want to step back a bit to explore some of this wider context for about the next 15 minutes. There's a few isms in here. Um, hey, that's the way of the world. <laughs> that we've remained blithely ignorant of colonialism, enslavement, dispossession and appropriation as key facets of sports history is not to suggest that we've been blind to the oppression of Indigenous peoples or to the trauma of settler colonialism. As scholars, some of us have been involved in struggles over the racist appropriation of Indigenous imagery by sports teams, which is cases, which is cases such as Exeter Rugby Football Club, with its chief's name Wigwam Bar and Totem Pole in the foyer, remind us, is not limited to colonies of settlement. In our broad field, a number of discipline areas, including history, have provided the base for scholars exploring games and sport in Indigenous settings. Much of this wider literature deals with questions of Indigenous athletes in modern sport at both recreational and uh, elite performance levels. And this literature ranges from noting the persistence of, sorry, noting the persistence of Indigenous games through to the presence of or entry into modern sport by Indigenous athletes, as well as work by researchers such as Colin Tatz, Janice Forsyth, Christina Bonsuin, who I think is in the room, Kia Christine, and Gary Osmond and Matthew Klugman, who have, who have explored Indigenous engagements with modern sport as sites of struggle. And work by historians, including but not only those who claim the label sports historian, aside from a small but growing number of research projects working, working with Indigenous communities, there are three key modes or tropes that recognise Indigenous athletes as Indigenous. The first explores sport as an Indigenous practice in sites of adversity, including quite extensively off-reservation residential schools in Turtle Island or North America, if you'd prefer as well as in the broader, often implicit settings of colonial dispossession. It's a sizable body of this literature on residential schools, including ex excellent work by John Bloom, Linda Peavy and Ursula Smith, and more recently by Wade Davies and Alan Downing. This mode has also seen a powerful body of literature, including Richard Wagamese's, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, superb novel, Indian Horse and often in the testimonies of residential school survivors, such as those given to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and as some of us have seen in Eugene Arkham's contribution to a recent uh, issue of the Journal of Sport History. A key facet of much of those discussions is the question of self-organization and to a degree cultural, including language sustenance. There is a risk, however, that these kinds that, that, that this focus on these kinds of coercive institutional settings overshadows other similar sites, such as that that we see in Colin Tatch's work on Aboriginal Australian sideshow boxes. The second trope that runs through historians' discussions of Indigenous sport explores forms of self-organisation. I'll spend a little more time here because it's an area that often stretches our disciplinary comfort zone. These cases of self-organisation often take on subtle and complex forms, for instance, in Benjamin Sachs' exploration of uh, late 19th and early 20th century cricket and clickety in Samoa, where cricket, the conventionally recognisable 11 aside game, became a site of social identification and assertion, especially for those known in Samoan as afikasi. Yet, as Sachs notes, as clickety, the Samoan game adapted from cricket to a Samoan context. The game functioned as a key part of extended social networks and relationship maintenance in and on Samoan terms. 
Alongside the need for an anthropological awareness, one of the challenges for historians trying to make sense of these cases can be access to sources and information. There is seldom much in the archive, although as Sachs notes in this, in this study or achieved in the study, it's possible to read through and across the archive to get a sense of the indigenous world. But the other challenge for us here is making sense of these forms of self-organization. Here, and shifting across the South Pacific, I turn again to fiction, in particular to one novel for today's purposes, Bully Basher by Ngāti Pirau novelist, academic and diplomat Witi Ihamaira. I will come back to Ngāti Pirau later. The point of the novel is not important. One long sequence is. As the plot line is intensifying and as characters need to be able to resolve some key issues, Ihamaira takes them to a local sports tournament. But this is not a tournament arranged by sports organisations, but by extended family groups in the novel's broader kinship network. It's not a one-off, but an annual sports tournament that seems to have at least two key functions in addition to playing some sport. The first is to get all the families together for kinship building, for status competition, for courtship, and crucially to spend the weekend sorting out issues. And it's this that takes us to the second point, where the tournament has become part of an annual cycle of hui, of, of, of gatherings, during which the old people talk amongst themselves, sort out problems between the families, and importantly, suggest and agree solutions to problems within families. The teams are all kin group based, and in many cases have reputations developed over many years for styles of play. These are rugby, field hockey and netball competitions that resemble the ice hockey tournaments Michael Robidoux explored among First Nations in Canada. But rather than taking advantage of opportunities presented by peripatetic teams and, and tournaments, this is an endogenous event where sport becomes the means to draw together the extended kin groups and maintain the modi, the life force of the people. This fictional instance is also similar to the evidence sex sites of Klikiti and Samoan Malanga cycles of social network maintenance. Most of us fail to see these events or this indigenous significance. The third trope is seen in those discussions of sport recast as indigenous practice. Here, there are also a range of cases from those that consider playing style to indigenous games and the indigenization of modern sport. Sizable parts of this work, especially in relation to playing styles, samba football, calypso cricket and so forth, is woven through with a view from coloniality. This view blends in different balances the discourse of the licentious native body, the myth of natural flair, and the assertion of the colonised and racialized subaltern as body, not mind. In this trope, perhaps more than others, it is difficult to distinguish indigenous peoples from others who we might see as colonial subaltern. There are instances where this notion of playing styles is yoked to anti-colonial nationalism, consider Caribbean calypso cricket and netball, but for the most part, it must be understood as part of the set of oppressive outlooks and practices that shape and legitimate colonialism and imperialism. More nuanced and challenging approaches may be seen in work that explores the reshaping of modern sport on indigenous terms, usually to take on meanings outside those understood by coloniality, modernity, and at times to remain or become recognizably distinct forms of sport and movement. For instance, in his discussion of indigenous lacrosse, Alan Downey makes clear that he is looking at the sportized modern game, not the longhouse version of the Haudenosaunee creators game. In the previously mentioned work by Ben Sachs, cricket as the colonial game is shown to be distinct from clickety as a striking and fielding game derived from cricket, but redefined to meet the codes and expectations of Asamo, the Samoan way. Similarly, Natalie Welsh's current work looking at stickball as a community building practice amongst the Eastern Cherokee draws on a sporting culture refined to meet indigenous needs. Welch's work also confronts the erasure of Indigenous women's athletic accomplishments, further disrupting the gaze from coloniality modernity. Now, these three tropes, resistance to adversity, self-organisation and sport as Indigenous practice, suggest a much more complex relationship between Indigenous peoples and body and movement cultures, linked to what decolonial scholars such as Walter Mignolo, Catherine Walsh and Anibal Kihano call the colonial matrix of power. 
In the particular cases I want to explore further, and I will get to those in a couple of minutes, these questions are an abstract of the settler colonial project and the ways the colonial matrix of power limits our vision and our perception. Settler colonialism has been the subject of extensive theoretical and empirical analysis in the last 20 years, allowing us to build a much clearer sense of its distinctiveness. And I'm delighted to see in the just published Routledge Handbook of Sports History, Murray Phillips has an essay in it exploring settler colonialism and, 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 and sport. There are two key points to note for today's purposes, however. First, settler colonialism is not an event back then but a continuing process of dispossession, alienation, and extermination. Secondly, a vital objective of settler colonialism is the destruction of indigenous peoples, either through extermination or cultural genocide or both, and their replacement by settlers as the new natives. A vital part of that cultural genocide is the extinguishment of indigenous ways of knowing and making sense of the world. Now, in some settings, as the Ugandan sociologist of law, Sylvia Tamale, notes, we see this done through the formalization of, in her case, traditional law, not as a living system of knowledge, but as a set, a fixed set of relations frozen at the moment of codification by the colonial state. In others, we see what some call epistemocide, and I've only ever seen it written down, so that's how I'm choosing to, 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 to pronounce it. And this is the destruction of indigenous knowledge systems on the basis that they are supposedly primitive, irrational, non-scientific and so forth, and their replacement with colonizers' epistemologies that are claimed to be enlightened, modern, rational and scientific, and more importantly, the truth with a great big capital T. Part of this process is the reduction of indigenous peoples to crude and singular labels and, and, and images, the warrior, the savage, the spiritual, and more, as part of the creation of a powerful single story that denies the complexity and changing character of indigenous communities. The intention of this process of epistemocide as a form of cultural genocide is to, is to extinguish indigenous worldviews as part of the claims by settlers that they've become native. Crucially, although they may become invisible to the settler world, in many cases, these worldviews persist, guiding and shaping indigenous ways of being. Recognizing the survival allows us to engage with the pluriversality of the situations that we work in and the multiple ways those worlds are known and experienced. So this process of epistemocide and of settlers becoming native through the extinguishment of the indigenous is systematic and global. It links the systems of colonialism, enslavement, dispossession, and appropriation to the wider structures I've been referring to as coloniality, modernity. This notion, central to some strands of decolonial scholarship, considers coloniality and modernity to be mutually co-produced modes of structuring knowledge and its organization. The most systematic approach is developed in Walter Mignola's philosophical historical analyses of, of modernity. This is not only a view that they are concurrent, but they are part of the same global intellectual, political, economic and systemic processes feeding and sustaining each other at multiple levels. My point here is that although I'm about to discuss specific settler colonial cases, they are related and intimately interwoven with other forms of imperial and colonial power and relations, both in the colonies and the metropolitan zones. So. Shifting from the conceptual, I'd like to tease out these complex relations of being and doing by turning to Aotearoa, New Zealand. We're going to the North Island's east coast. This region has one of the highest proportions of Māori population in the country and is one of the most remote, rural and commercially impoverished. It's also distinctive in that the local rugby union, the East Coast Rugby Football Union, has a territory that aligns closely with the local iwi, with Ngāti Parau. Um, I've used iwi a couple of times. It's a relatively high-level descent group. If we were in North America, we would probably call them nations. In the late 1990s, the union changed its name to become Ngāti Parau East Coast Rugby Football Union, reflecting the changing cultural significance of the team and its internal and external cultures. But before venturing out east, we need quickly to consider the indigenous markers of New Zealand sport. 
During the later 19th century, a tendency for touring teams from settler colonies to perform what were presented as native war dances, and please hear the sneer marks, marked the claims of indigenization of settlers. The most persistent of these is the use of haka in New Zealand rugby, notably but not exclusively by the men's national team, the All Blacks. Haka are widely misunderstood. The All Blacks' use of one, of one specific haka, kamate, became so dominant that into the 1980s, if not later, many seemed to assume it was the only haka. Now, to be fair, kamate does have a distinctive status in that it is now written into New Zealand law as a taonga, as a treasure, belonging to and under the guardianship of Ngāti Tōa, an iwi in the southwest of, of the North Island, and most intriguingly, has recently been granted protected status under a recent UK-New Zealand free trade agreement. Yet despite Kamati's popular status as the haka, the Tūhoi scholar Timoti Karetu describes haka as, and I quote, the generic name for all Māori dance. In the colonial vision, haka were often cast as war dancers, hear the sneer marks again. Well, Akaritu notes that traditionally war dances were usually performed with weapons. This is clearly not the case in a sporting setting, unless we consider athletes' bodies to be weapons. Where the haka we see can be understood as performing the function of neri. This is a short haka to, again in Karate's words, stiffen the sinews to summon the blood. Although properly speaking, neri have no set movements. The increasingly choreographed character of haka in sports settings means that they may also be seen as haka taparahi, with performers lined up in ranks with set movements. Yet even with these blurred definitions, to see haka as war dancers is part of the settler colonial drive to dehumanize Māori by reducing them to warriors. Haka have been part of New Zealand's rugby since the first international tour of the of the New Zealand natives team to Britain and elsewhere in 1888 and 89. In this case, they were included in pre-game and half-time entertainment in the pattern scene with other indigenous sports teams. It's not clear when haka became part of the national team's pre-game ritual, or the kamate was performed before matches against both Scotland and Wales in 1905. Haka have also appeared intermittently in other sports events, including one performed by the national netball team, before they were the Silver Ferns, at the first World Tournament in Eastbourne in 1963. I have only a photograph on a book cover to base that claim on, and presume it was Kamate, uh, but that's a guess, and if anybody out there knows anything else about it, please get in touch. By the 1970s, the All Blacks haka had become a half-hearted, often derisory team ritual, and subject to increasing critique with the rise of Māori civil rights activism. This changed from the mid-1980s, partly as a result of that external critique, and partly, it seems, as a result of pressure from Māori players, to the extent that haka have become more institutionalised, as in this instance from the Māori All Blacks in 2016, And uh, just to note, that wasn't Kamate. Um, a number of the teams have had um, have had haka subsequently written to them. But note in this case, both the camera operator and microphones in place to capture the event. We'll come back to this form of haka later. So my first Nati Paro story comes from 1999. The team had had a good run in the third and lowest division of the national provincial competition, and after a tense semi-finals round, secured a home game for the final. The winners would secure promotion to the second division, bigger crowds, a greater income, and higher profile. The impoverished region it was significant. 
Their opponents were the neighbouring neighboring Poverty Bay team. There's a lot of tension here. The East Coast Union came into being in 1922 when it split from the Poverty Bay Union. The East Coast is based in the small country town of Rotoria. Population 750, 80%, 85% of whom identified as Māori in the 2018 census and the biggest town in the region. Poverty Bay is based in the local regional centre of Gisborne with a population of 36,000. This indicates some of the disparities between the two areas. More importantly, the major iwi in the Poverty Bay area is Rongofakata, whose different descent line marks it as distinct from Ngāti Paro and who, as neighbours so often are, were long-standing rivals. The final was played in Ruatoria's Whakarua Park with its grandstand seating about 250. There were flatbed lorries around the field with seating resulting in a total crowd of between three and 5,000. It was quite hard to keep count. The final score, 18-15, redeemed the East Coast team after their 15-10 loss to Poverty Bay earlier in the season and secured promotion to the second division. There are two key points here, however. The first is that on the day, it was hard to escape the feeling that as much as this was a Poverty Bay East Coast NPC finals match, much of the iconography and ambience and spirit of the day made it clear this was also Nati Paro playing wrong with the Carter, a derby that embodied hundreds of years of rivalry and conflict. Now, to be fair, this is how this local derby often felt, but the stakes, promotion to the second division, were higher than usual in this case. The second point is in some ways more significant and has earned the team many New Zealand rugby followers their place, uh, the place as their second favourite. The union refused to accept the promotion and opted to stay in the third division. But it wasn't this that was important as much as the reason why. Local opinion widely shared nationally at the time was that the union was of the view that moving up would mean more away games, but their supporters would find it more difficult to travel to. So they sacrificed the money, the status, and potential for greater success to keep their affinity with their people. There are also suggestions over the unions uh, of, of that there were concerns over the union's ability to pay for the necessary upgrade to Whakarua Park, uh, and that some felt the team needed time to, to develop. And as much as I can work out, both of those are correct. The next year, they again won the third division, not against Poverty Bay, and did accept promotion. And much to the surprise of most and the delight of many, reached the 2001 second division final, which they lost, although at 30 to 27, it was a close run thing. Crucially for my case today, this 1999 match and its consequences run through with the Māori principles of kin group affinity, of serving the interests of the descent line and ensuring access to important, in this case, cultural resources. That is, with the principles of whanaungatanga, that is the existential centrality of relationships to Māori life, manakitanga, the, the need to maintain those relationships through care and respect, and utu, that is reciprocity and balance. These principles seem to provide the most convincing explanation of this decision to, first, break the rules of the NPC, second, offend the paymasters at the NPC, and third, violate the principles of, ach of achievement sport of accepting challenge and being the best you can. All of these things, these, these things done by refusing to accept promotion. Now, noting the importance of these indigenous ontological and epistemological concepts, my second case is more recent and relates to a challenge match in 2013. The Ranfurly Shield has been a high point of New Zealand rugby competition since it was first played for in 1904, although it has been rather overshadowed in the professional era since 1995. It is still widely considered, however, to be a major event, in part because it's a challenge and not a league competition. The team that holds it at the end of any given season is required to accept seven challenges for the next season. Any rugby union may challenge. It's a sudden de 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 death event. The winner on the day becomes the holder. By 2012, East Coast had played six Rift Shield matches. The first in 1953, the most recent in 2002. The narrowest score was in 1968 when they lost 31 mil. The widest in 1997 when the scoreline was an eye-watering 115 to 6. At least they scored twice. Ranfurly Shield challenges are big events, 
because of the historical significance of the shield and because of the eternal hopes of the giant killers. But for the 2013 match, my interest is less in the game than in the haka. The haka before the East Coast ran fairly shield challenge against the Waikato team, a first division giant, looked very different to the early corporate all black one, in part because it's not performed by the team, by supporters. Now, for the purposes of the point that I'm trying to make here today, the main thing about this haka is that it's a challenge to the Waikato team by members of the local community with their team in the background with the horse. I love the horse. It's just, it's, it's 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 part of my part of the many delightful things of, about this day. As a consequence, the locally representative, not very well paid professional team is claimed and labelled as standing in for us by those who mount the challenge in the form of the haka. Consider the symbolism of these two haka in terms of who performs them. On the one hand, we have the elite professionals taking to the team, to taking to the field and asserting their will to fight to the opposing team. On the other hand, we have the locally elite professionals on whose behalf local men and boys, and note here it's mainly boys, assert that will to fight. In doing so, they forcefully remind the visiting team that they are guests in the Ngati Parau lands and the team that they are about to play is representative of, is part of, those lands and their people. Seldom do we see representativeness made so obvious through this assertion of human and non-human kinship. By non-human kinship, I mean literally being of the land, belonging to that place. The Waikato team's haka in reply seemed frail. The game was not Waikato 1, 65-10, at least East Coast board three times. There is no doubt that the All Blacks haka inspires the team and supporters, but it's a distinctive Māori moment to see the crowd take the field and to issue the challenge on behalf of the team. Although interestingly, it's increasingly common in elite schools and I'm struggling with the cultural politics and iconography of that. So again, if anyone has any ideas. This view from Tao Māori, from the Māori world, casts haka in a very different light to the highly corporatised, in this case, Māori or Black haka, with its choreographed, serried ranks given meaning in and by coloniality modernity. Here we see haka as neri, stirring the blood and strengthening the sinews of the East Coast team, where the spectators claim the team as theirs, claim membership of the team, and assert the team as representing, as being of, Ngāti Parau as a people and a place. This is Whakapapa Kōrero, this is talking dissent 
in action, asserting indigeneity to be tangata whenua, to be of this land. This is well beyond the dehumanizing settler colonial depiction of haka as war dancers, sneer marks there again, to become a potent assertion of being Ngāti Parau. In doing so, it hints at a much more complex world of Māori sport and of being indigenous in it, of asserting relationships in ways that disrupt the colonizers' model of the world, pointing to a transcultural world of sport with a Māori emphasis. Now, the point of these stories is not that East Coast sport is somehow distinct, although its small size and considerable success means there might be something about its rugby. The point is more that as historians, we, we tend to fail to see this deeply significant sporting and body culture for what it is. At best, we tend to see it as a bit of local colour, of the kind that points to New Zealand rugby or Canadian hockey, US basketball or Australian rules football, and then acknowledges out there on the margins, among the natives, a bit of vibrancy, a bit of local style. This blindness is not a personal deficiency, but is structural. The failure to see Indigenous peoples in the transcultural space where their worlds link to the colonisers is a product of colonialism and of coloniality modernity's dualist abstractions. To understand the blind spot, we need to grasp settler, coloni settler colonialism's colonialism's epistemicide, its attempted destruction of indigenous ways of knowing, and its dual deployment of utopian imagery. On the one hand, free migration to a settler colony is legitimated by an abstracted vision of what parts of the world left behind are going to be rebuilt in a pure form in the new place. That is, settler colonialism preserves its home identities in its utopian vision of better Britain, new France, new Holland, new Spain, new South Wales, or whatever other label it claims. In duplicating what is good, it is a profoundly conservative utopia. Alongside this utopia of the boosters is the prosaic everyday utopia of God's own land. This enacts the real and everyday utopia that is not home, but is God's own. The new settlement ordered in such a way as to slough off the sins and imperfections that drove immigration. So, wrapping it all up then, settler colonialism is about building a new world. It therefore should not surprise us that the time before colonization is the time of prehistory. With history beginning at colonization, so too, the so too do the indigenous who if not exterminated is not fit for the new world, are culturally exterminated by a settler society that seeks to incorporate the colonized by making them into new people. With a language of uncontrollability and licentiousness means that in part, newness is defined as the new imperial body and new imperial movement through clothing, work and play. Although decolonization and post-colonization have exposed colonialism's dystopia and indigenous peoples have survived in many settings reasserting themselves, for the most part, we have a tendency as historians of sport to fail to see the continuing indigenous world and its knowledge systems and to see the settler, to, to, to see the indigenous settler contact zone. I'm acutely aware as a product of settler colonialism that the colonizer and the colonized occupy different life worlds. We have some contact in controlled settings, but colonizers have little quotidian understanding or recognition of Tao Māori of distinct indigenous worlds. Without that, without conscious decisions to, in Linda Tuhiwai Smith's words, recenter indigenous ways of knowing, our scholarship's analytical blindness impoverishes us. Thank you. Thanks, Malcolm. There's quite a lot of people in the room, so um, perhaps if you would like to, um, if you would like to ask a question, then um, raise your hand uh, virtually, and and then we will. Uh, that, or uh, feel free to type into the chat if you have a question. Um, you can either type the question or just type, I have a question, and, and I will call on you. Um, so, yeah, we've got um, 15 or 20 minutes for questions. Um, so, 
uh, such an interesting paper, Malcolm, and and so rich. And and I um, have kind of um, heard some of it because um, you obviously gave a slightly earlier version of it at the BSSH conference. But it's so interesting to hear some of it again and actually reflect on it even more. I'm so by this reference to a netball team did you say in 1963 doing, doing a hacker because yep. it strikes me that so much of this is is also about masculinity um so can you maybe like just talk a little bit about that how how does that fit in you know um what was what was going on there with the netball team and and how much do you think this relates to masculinity Oh, Lordy, well, I have no idea what was going on with 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 the, with the netball team. As I say, honestly, it's a photograph on the on the back cover of a book. Um, but what I what I think it does do is tell us some really interesting stories about how um, about haka and indigeneity and how Maori was seen at that time. That that um, uh, as was often the, as as was often the case in settler colonial settings, there's this discourse of assimilationism and inclusion and appropriation, and you know that that the that the um and and the 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 New Zealand setting, the the historian James Ballich talks about uh, New Zealanders being better Britons and Maori be, be becoming brown Britons. Uh, and there's this there's a sense of uh, uh, collective ownership because, as so often happens in settler colonial settings, it's the indigenous peoples who mark the distinctiveness of the of the of, of, of the of the place. Um, so the kinds of sensitivities that we've probably seen in the last fifteen to twenty years about who may legitimately or not perform haka really weren't recognised in the late fifties and, and the early sixties. It was just a, a thing that one did, and certainly there would not have been any of the kind of debates that we've that we see more more recently about what kinds of haka women and men are expected or not expected to to to, to perform. Um, so that traditionally there are forms of haka that are associated with men and 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 that and that are associated with 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 women. Although in sporting settings, the kinds of the kinds of haka that are associated with what men do have become increasingly taken on by women. If you look at the the the, the black black ferns, for instance, they, um, uh, uh, that they will they will they will perform haka, but interestingly, they're also often specifically written for the team, um, which absolutely wouldn't have been the case in 1963. Uh, and I guess that's the other part of it that um, that if you look at work by Karitu and so on and so forth that, that explore haka as a form, multiple for, multiple forms, and as the generic term for dance, there's a whole bunch of different things that men and women will do differently. Uh, it's very much seen, and, and the way it's been appropriated in, in New Zealand sport, very much performs a sense of masculinity, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Although um, it's just been pointed out in the chat, um, and my partner Sid also pointed out to me that apparently the the women's the New Zealand women's rugby team performed a hacker yesterday um, prior to their game against England at, at Northampton. So that's um, quite interesting. I was not aware of that. Thank you, Richard Body. Um, yes, and 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 uh, that was my point about about the black ferns that 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 haka as as with the one with the Māori or blacks, which all was specifically written for the team in that particular context. Great. Okay. Um, I can see that there's a hand up. Um, Christine, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Hello, Malcolm. Hey, Hello, Christine. Everyone. Hi, nice to see you. Uh, thank you for that wonderful talk. I absolutely loved it. Um, I think a lot of what was raised here today, this is, we've had many conversations about uh, much of this and um, that's a great extension to that seven minute Nash presentation. So uh, thank you for the context. Um, your earlier slide where you included an article I wrote just reminded me that I have to get that book out eventually. <laughs> so you <laughs> motivated me in many ways today. Um, so I, I, my question was, um, I think, um, exactly on the the first issue that was raised around gender and some of the tensions that arise. Um, so I think you answered that great and that provided me with a lot more context because I don't, uh, I'm not really 
familiar um, on those protocols around the Hakka and what the expectations are for men and women, um, perhaps non-binary folks, uh, all of those issues that arise. But what it did make me think of, and this is more a comment than a question, but I think that is very similar um, to the issues we see. You uh, showed uh, uh, Alan Downey's book, The Creator's Game. And uh, your response to that question made me think about um, a, a film, a documentary called Keepers of the Game. And a lot of those tensions that arise um, in my part of the world on the East Coast of, uh, of Canada, um, close to my home territories, Haudenosaunee territories, and what are, what's expected of men and women. And that gets into a lot of what you talked around, settler colonialism. And the questions we have to ask ourselves in our own cultures and communities around, um, is this a, do our cu cultures evolve in, in a way that we would adapt and change or is this the expectations of settler colonialism? So anyways, that just um, made me think of that. But I did, you raised um, many questions um, that I do have. I think selfishly, um, going back to the beginning of your presentation and you presented those troops, um, sports, uh, Indigenous sport as resistance, uh, sites of adversity, and self-organization. And you provided examples in all of um, those areas. I'm just wondering in terms of establishing the works that you did in certain areas, do you see um, where they could sit in other places and, and sites? Like, for example, I think you had Alan Downey um, under the category of adversity, but perhaps do you see that also as resistance and self-organization? Absolutely. The, the, the citation of Downey's book, there was specifically in relation to the content around residential schools, but he's telling a, a much more complex story about um, uh, 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 how um, as how uh, indigenous communities in Canada have 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 engaged with the sportized version of of a, of a tra tra traditional game. It's it's a very it's a very subtle and I think well argued book. Folks should read it. Um, uh, and I guess the 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 key point there is none of those texts is singular. Um, that they do that they do much more much more complex things. Um, uh, I, I think the other point that I'd, that I'd make is that um, uh, although I had a bit of a tendency to pick up on texts there from from North America, we see we see similar kinds of practices and similar kinds of li literature and 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 other colonial settings. The, the the New Zealand stuff is not so well developed. There's some quite there's some quite good emerging scholarship, but there's just not the same, I guess, body of evidence that, that we see that we see from 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 the North American setting. But I'd also want at this point just to note some work that my colleague at Queensland, Gary Os Osmond, is doing with Indigenous communities in Queensland and looking at looking at at working with those communities to develop. Um, uh, 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 locally relevant and locally driven sports histories. I also just want to come back to your point about uh, that internal reflection question and, and, and what drives change. And that's, uh, that's one of the key points I cited Sylvia Tamale as well. That's one of the really important points that she makes when she looks at indigenous legal systems in um, uh, colonized parts of Africa. Um, and the point that she's making there is that, is that, is that uh, what happened at the point of colonization was a really vibrant, lively, developing, uh, organic legal system was frozen to say, to say, this is what native law looks like, and then overladen with Christian concepts and so on and so forth that 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 redefine things like gen gender relations in really pr pr problematic ways. We, uh, which I think then takes takes me to the point that it's not just in the sports history that we're not particularly good at, at, at recognizing those those indigenous life life, life worlds that it's that it's a, a, a weakness and a feature of imperial and colonial histories as a whole. I'll stop now because I could go on for hours. Yeah, I could keep asking you questions, so I'll stop for now too. Thanks so much. <laughs> nice seeing you. Thanks, Christine. Okay, um, and uh, Francois, 
Let's go. A hand up. Oh, you're on. You're on mute. Um, just sorry, sorry. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Malcolm. Uh, wonderful talk again. Um, so, I don't know, so what does the Haka mean today in Cape Town? Um, the New Zealand rugby team has got the bigger support base than what it is in New Zealand, even. I don't want to say. And the support for the New Zealand team uh, is a political one. It is a, a somehow it is a rejection of the Springbok symbol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A, a feeling of people being left out from the post 1994 mm -hmm. spoils. So, what does the Haka then, what can the mean in this situation? I have no idea how a Cape Town audience might receive it and read it. Um, and I guess that's one of the other real challenges that we have investigating these kinds of cultural historical questions um, is that uh, we need to remember that really important difference between authorial intent and uh, audience reception. Um, so in the particular Cape Town context, I couldn't comment on that. But what I, what I, what I would say is that going back to the point that I was making about that, um, the, the kind of um, the revitalization and the re-engagement with, with what Haka should mean in the mid-80s. Um, as far as I can work out, and this is the this is a widely shared view uh, that it came down to uh, two or three key members, key leading Maori members of the of the All Black team, who said, "Look, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it right. So, so either either understand what the hell you're doing here, or stop pretending and stop the pro." appropriation. If you go back and look look at some of the stuff that was happening in, 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 in the late 70s, it was just this humiliating farce. Um, uh, uh, and what we have seen in elite rugby settings is a very clear attempt to educate team members. And I'm not just talking rugby union, I'm not just talking men's rugby here, that this is across both rugby union and, and rugby league. I see Mark in the room who, who probably knows a bunch of this stuff big, better than I do about league, uh, but also uh, uh, but also in, in a whole bunch of other, um, uh, in, in women's rugby and, and youth rugby as well. That there's this real intention with, uh, with, with the haka as as a team building and unifying and driving event that marks a distinctive set of characteristics. What I think has been interesting about it as well is that there has been the recognition in other settings of similar kinds of, of events. So we'll see uh, Manu Samoa, we'll see the Fijians, we'll see, we'll see, we'll We'll see. We'll see the Tongans doing similar kinds of things as part of their game preparation event. So, in a, so in, in in quite specific sport terms, it becomes a, a team ritual. It, it becomes it, it becomes a kind of sports psych event. Uh, and but, but those wider audience reception questions, I have no idea. I think we. I think it's the kind of thing that. Uh, that is crying out for a good research project, and we we might we might need to do to do to to to, to do some funding bids. <laughs> Great, thanks, Malcolm. Um, Clive, you've got your hand up as well, so I'll come to you next. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. Um, I just wanted to ask Malcolm. Uh, the Maori were not the first Indigenous people in New Zealand. Uh, there were another. Uh, native tribe, which was there first of all, and the Maoris drove them out. Um, the 88 uh, Maori team was the first rugby team to leave, uh, to lead, uh, leave, sorry, uh, New Zealand because the New Zealand Rugby Union wasn't set up until 1892 as mm -hmm. such. 
um, the Maori side, it's very interesting uh, that when I was in uh, New Zealand in 1981 to referee the New Zealand South Africa uh, to last two tests, the game before the second test was a Maori team versus uh, South Africa. Now, um, whilst uh, the New Zealand rugby team will take Maoris in to play for them, it seems rather strange that the uh, the Maori side, so, sorry, New Zealand team will take people in, the Maoris as well, to play for New Zealand. The Maori team insists on them being Maori people. Do you think that that is one way that they're trying to maintain their culture? Uh, there's a whole bunch of things there, Clive, that are really complex and, and, and interwoven, and I, I just have, have, have to rebut the first point. Um, there was uh, the, the, the invention of the Māori as, as a distinct people who were there before the Māori as a colonialist myth, and it, ex it, it exists almost only to justify Pākehā, to ju justify British co 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 colonisation. Um, uh, 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 there are there, there is a distinct iwi who are known as Moriori, but they are not a pre-existing pale-skinned, red-headed people as the as the as the as as the myth from from the uh, late nineteenth century tried to claim. Um, uh, so no, Maori are 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 indigenous. They were the first humans to 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 settle somewhere between 900 and 1200, depending on how you read the the uh, the uh, archaeological evidence. The separate existence of a of a of a of a Maori of a Maori All Blacks is um, It's hard to pin down exactly where it comes from. The, the, the New Zealand natives who toured in 1888-89 were originally intended to be an exclusively Māori team. Um, but in the classic world of, uh, of the settler colonial world, native became a blurred term. So, so it came to include, uh, there were five people who were non-Māori in the team, Four of whom were definitely New Zealand-born, but not Māori in that sense. And it appears that there was a fifth who was neither Indigenous nor born in the country. So native didn't apply to one of them. Uh, but but the intention was absolutely uh, to 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 tour as a commercial venture, as these kinds of things were in the in in, in the late nineteenth century before national governing bodies came into being. Um, a, um, a uh, an exclusively uh, indigenous team, as in as in Maori, um, but native is a blurred term. Uh, there is uh, there is an intense attachment in both Maori and Pākehā worlds to uh, to the continuing existence of a distinct New, New Zealand Maori team, um, and it's there is an there is a very significant pride attachment to it. Now, I think one of the things that we have to understand here, though, is that part of the reason why that, why, why that, why the, why the team continued to exist and have such significance in a number of new New, new Zealand settings was that when the New Zealanders toured South Africa, um, and bit before 1976, 1970, when I uh, know Māori uh, or um, other Pacific Islands were included in the team, the 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 the, the New Zealand Māori team was kind of sent off as a as a as a as a as an option for the guys who had otherwise been 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 excluded. Um, often to the Pacific Islands, but also often to Spain or Wales. Interestingly. Um, <laughs> it's become part of the the national sports sports establishment. It's been a its continuing presence for a long time was 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 contested, uh, but I, I don't see that the rugby football union has ever not considered having a separate Māori team in that sense. Mm. Great, thank you very much, Malcolm. Um, I think we're actually out of time.